The School of Ministry and Leadership is the meeting from Potter's Family Chapel where we gather week after week to peer into the Word of God to understand whether or not it has anything to say to our leadership. And time after time, the Word proves that indeed it does. You see, in the beginning, God created man and woman, and He blessed them both and commanded them to have dominion over every created thing in the earth and to be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth and subdue it. This is a call to leadership, for us to steward our God-given gifts and talents to cultivate the field he's called us to for his glory. We all have the seed of leadership in us, and God wants you to be equipped to lead because the world needs you right now. No matter who you are, it's my prayer that as you listen and as you begin to believe, you will see yourself growing as a leader. God bless you, and God bless your leadership. So tonight, we are going to talk about hope as an exercise in stretching. It's our last lap in the month of stretch, and as we come ever closer to Resurrection Sunday, we know that this really is the season of hope, that, that this was the reason why Jesus was sent, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. It was an act of hope. For those of you who are parents on the line, when you have your kids, you look at them in hope. You have hopes for your children. And God the Father has hopes for his children as well. And so tonight we're going to talk about hope, the final concept of stretching, hope as an exercise in stretching. Hallelujah. So tonight's text, before I begin to read it, I'm just going to ask you, I'm going to ask you to allow me to read this text in length. Now, those of you who have been at the School of Ministry and Leadership for a minute, you know that I like to read the word. You know that sometimes I will read in length a little bit more than uh, other teachers would. And I do that for a few reasons. Number one is simply because I, I love the word and I think that when the word is freed, uncaged, you don't need to do anything to it. You don't need to teach. I would be very happy to come on Mondays and in fact not teach and simply just read the Bible to you. You know, gather around children, come and sit by the fire. I'm going to read you this passage. The word can do what it wants. And so I like to read the word because the word is powerful. The second reason why I'm going to read this passage in uh, its extended form tonight is simply because we are in this resurrection season. And this passage is part of the resurrection story, but it's a part of the story that we don't normally hear. And so some of you might not be that familiar with the ins and outs of this part of the story. Usually we get so excited on Resurrection Sunday that he is risen, that we often end the story there. But there's this very important episode that happens and I want to capture it in all of its intricacy. And so I'll read it in its length so that you can become more familiar with it if you are not already. So there we have it. Please let me read it in its length and just enjoy the word of God as it washes over you. And remember that this is also a part of the resurrection story 
it, it represents almost an inflection point. This is the part of the story where we can actually see things shifting from everything that happened up till the point of Jesus's crucifixion. And then the story that comes afterwards, which is basically the establishment of the early church. So tonight we're speaking about hope as an exercise in stretching. And I'm going to read from Luke chapter 24, verse 13 down to the verse 35. Here we go. Now that same day, two of them, speaking of Jesus's disciples, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked alongside with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them named Cleopas asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here in these days? What things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him. But we had hoped, we had hoped, we had hoped, but we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us they went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women said, but they did not see Jesus. He said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going further. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road, and opened the scriptures to us? They got up and returned immediately to Jerusalem. There they found the 11 and those with them assembled together and saying, it is true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. Hallelujah, let us pray. Our Father and our Lord, we thank you so much for this opportunity to gather before you once again. 
Father, we thank you that in this season of resurrection, as we meditate on everything that the cross means, that you're giving us the chance to assemble together, even as your disciples, Lord Jesus, gathered together in those early days, trying to make sense of what this all means for our lives. Holy Spirit, I thank you so much for being here. I ask you, Lord, to breathe on us once again, create something new in our hearts, refresh us and revive us once more, Lord. Let your breath this evening bring wisdom and understanding and discernment. May it bring courage and urgency so that we can apply what we learn from you this evening. Lord Jesus, I thank you that as you are teaching us your word this evening. You are stirring in each and every soul tonight, reminding each and every soul tonight what you had done previously, just as you did when you walked with Cleopas and the other disciple on that road to Emmaus. Lord, as our eyes are opened this evening, may we rush back to our assignments and tackle them with a fresh verve and a fresh zeal. We thank you for what you have already done and what you are about to do. In the mighty name of Jesus, we have prayed, amen. So we're speaking tonight about hope as an exercise in, in stretching. And we see in this text tonight that we find two disciples of Jesus, Cleopas and a disciple who's not named. Some scholars think that maybe it was Cleopas's wife. Others think that it was another one of the disciples. And they're leaving Jerusalem on the third day after Jesus has been crucified. And we can imagine, we don't know why they're going to Emmaus, but we can imagine that they're going because they've lost hope. And we read from Proverbs chapter 13, verse 12 last week that says, hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a longing fulfilled is a tree of life. And we see the disciples here heart sick because their hopes have been dashed. We hear them say from their own mouths, we had hoped that this Jesus of Nazareth would save our nations, we hoped that he would have been the redeemer of Israel, but we also hoped that he was gonna be the one to save our souls. We believed in him like never before. But now he's gone. They've killed him. His body is missing. And everything that we've staked our lives on in the past few years is over. We don't really know what to do. And so we're leaving this place in hopes that we can, if not find answers, at least go back to the things that we used to understand. And so these disciples, Cleopas and his friend, they're on their way to Emmaus, seven miles, which in those days would have been a, about a two hour walk. And as we spoke last week about the crucible of leadership, this experience that is intense, traumatic, and always unplanned, we can imagine that these two disciples are 
walking away to try to make sense of the trauma and the disappointment that was simply too much for them. They had to, they had to get out of Jerusalem. They didn't see a future for themselves anymore in Jerusalem. And so I just want to pause there for a moment and just ask who amongst us has had his or her hopes dashed, where you felt like something in your life just crashed and burned, that whatever it was that you were imagining, expecting, hoping for, that you came to this realization that it was now dead, something had happened and it was gone from you forever. We see in other parts of the text that even Peter, feeling this sense of confusion and disappointment, he says to the other disciples, I don't know about you, but I'm going back to fishing. And so when we live in the world, the normal response to this violent kind of disappointment is often confusion, but it's often rage. And I don't know how many people are familiar with the Harlem Renaissance, this movement of Black American poets in the late 40s, early 1950s. One of the greats from the Harlem Renaissance was a poet by the name of Langston Hughes. And Hughes has this very famous poem, it's called Harlem, it was written in 1951. It's a very short poem and I'm going to read it. But Hughes writes, what happens to a dream deferred? Does it dry up like a raisin in the sun? Or fester like a sore and then run? Or crust and sugar over like a syrupy sweet? Maybe it just sags like a heavy load Or does it explode? And so you can hear in this poem that Hughes starts off with borrowed biblical language. We're speaking about Proverbs 13, 12, about the hope deferred. And as Hughes is writing about the Black American experience, about the oppression, about the slavery, about the racism, he asks, what happens to a dream deferred? And you can hear that he's able to capture that slow burning pressure that comes from generations who've been caught in slavery, in bondage, in oppression, in hopelessness. And of course, this is the normal, natural human response, this confusion and this rage. But when we look at the Bible, we see that even in the context of slavery, bondage, and oppression, there's another response. We're reminded of Moses, who chose to suffer with the people of Israel, believing, as Hebrews tells us, that the repro reproach of Christ was more valuable than anything else that Moses endured 
because he saw Jesus. The scripture tells us that Moses endured as though having seen the invisible. And so Moses, despite his many, many weaknesses, Moses was able to lead through the power of hope. And so we remember that Jesus's crucifixion wasn't just a personal crisis for his disciples. It was also a political stake for the powers of the day. Of course, we know that the Roman forces were occupiers in the land, but it wasn't just between the Roman occupiers and the native Jews. There were also internal conflicts on both sides. We know that Pilate and Herod were never friends until they were able to agree on Jesus. And we know that the Pharisees and the Sadducees, even them, they represented different visions of the salvation of Israel. And yet all of these opposing and conflicting political forces were able to agree and come together when it came to the crucifixion of Christ. So this was a political issue in as much as it was a personal crisis for them who followed Jesus, a personal crisis for them who loved him. So in this text tonight, we find these disciples. They're in despair. They're at the point where they've lost all hope. And as they're speaking with one another on this road, their conversation reveals something very deep to us. They said, we had hoped that he was the one. And then they, they go on to explain all of the ways that this had not come to be. They said, we had hoped that he was the one, except that today's the third day. And he told us that he would return on the third day and we were expecting all of this fanfare and there hasn't been anything. In fact, nobody has seen him. Some of our women said that the tomb is empty, but we're not really sure what they're talking about. The men went to the, the tomb and yes, it's empty, but nobody has seen Jesus. And so we had hoped that he was the one, but we're not really sure what to make of all of this. He gave us an assignment and yet the assignment is not really turning out the way we expected. And so I want to just ask anyone this evening, has Jesus given you an assignment that's turned out differently from what you expected? You had hoped that this was the one. You hoped that this assignment would redeem you. You hoped that this assignment would change you. You hoped that this assignment would make you stronger or better. You thought that this assignment would help you get over whatever was holding you back in the past. You expected this assignment to be fulfilled at a certain point on the third day, but time has since passed and nothing has happened. You can't find Jesus anywhere. But I want you to be encouraged because we have to remember that it's not what we hoped, it's not what you hoped, it's not what I hoped. Cleopas and his companion, they say, they say, we had hoped. And so they're speaking in the past tense. And yet hope is a future thing. 
Hope is in the future tense. Hope is the thing that God is going to give you. When we look at that scripture in Jeremiah 29, 11, God is speaking in the present tense because he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He doesn't change. He says, I know the thoughts I think towards you. I know the thoughts I think towards you. Think is in the present tense because he's the same. He doesn't say, I know what I thought about you. He says, I know the thoughts I think towards you. And then he goes on, as we know, to say that his plan is to give you an expected end. That's how it's rendered in the KGV. In the NIV, it says, my plan is to give you hope and a future. And I find it just the most helpful to combine those two translations. So I always say that I know that his plans are to give me hope and an expected end. I've got hope and I've got a future. I've got hope and an expected end. But he says, I know what I think towards you, still in the present, and it's his plans for your assignment, not your plans for your assignment. It's his plans for your assignment that are going to bring you to this hope and this expected end. And so that has to be good news for anyone who thought you had hoped something about your assignment. Fear not and trust God's word who says, I know the thoughts that I think about your assignment, and it's to give you hope and an expected end, amen. So Jesus joins Cleopas and his companion, and he joins them at the point where they are rehashing everything that they thought they knew. And he tells them that you didn't really understand at all. You didn't really get it. Let me take you back, starting at Moses, starting at the one who saw me through the invisible and had hope and was able to lead a hopeless generation out of slavery, out of bondage, out of oppression and into hope. Let's go back to Moses and let me show you how hope has been fulfilled. And Jesus shows them what the Messiah had to suffer. So again, he reminds us that suffering is the fulfillment of longing. Back to Proverbs 13, 12, that yes, hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a longing fulfilled is a tree of life. And Jesus shows us that the suffering is the fulfillment of the longing. The interesting thing about the word hope is that hope is both a noun and it's also a verb. That hope is a noun, so it's a thing. It is uh, something that's tangible. It, it's a state. But hope is also a verb, meaning that it's an action. So if you have hope as a thing, it means that you have an aspiration. You have a desire. You have a wish. You have unexpectation. You have unambition. You have unaim. You have a plan. So it's it's a thing, something tangible. But as a verb, hope also means to want something to happen or to be the case. So 
You hope and it's to expect. You hope and it's to anticipate. You hope and it's to look for. You hope and it's to wait for. And then when we go back to the old English, the, the old way of using the noun of hope was to speak about a feeling of trust. So not a noun as in something that you could tap like a table or a door or a chair, but something that exists nonetheless. So this feeling of trust. And as Jesus is walking with Cleopas and his companion, and he reminds them, and he reminds them. And then when he enters into the room with them, he, he makes as if he's going to keep walking and they urge him to stay with them. And I paused there when I read this because this is the second time in the scriptures where we see this thing that Jesus does, where he makes as if he's going to go by, he's gonna walk by, he's gonna just carry on until the people say, no, stay with us. So he does this on the road to Emmaus with Cleopas and his friend, but he also does it to the disciples when they are in the boat, when they are facing the winds and the winds are contrary to them. They're not with Jesus at that moment because he has sent them up ahead of him while he stays in the mountain to pray. And when he appears to them, we know that they're in the state of panic because the storm is severe and, and they're alone, they're without him. And they see this figure and they think it's a ghost. And Jesus is walking on the water past them and he would have kept walking past them if they had not called out to him. And I always found that strange. I always found myself asking, why would Jesus just walk by? Why would he pretend to go by unless they called to him? And we'll come back to that in a moment. But when Jesus stays with them, with Cleopas and his friend, after they've been on this nearly two hour journey together, and it's getting late, the sun has set, the road is probably a little dangerous, and they say, no, no, friend, you cannot, you cannot keep going, stay with us for the night. So after the verbal, reminders as Jesus is teaching them Moses and the prophets once more we see Jesus give them the final reminder and this reminder is not by elaborating the word for them it's not by teaching them the word but it's by taking them through an experience that they had shared with him before so he breaks the bread and he blesses the bread and as he does that he's taking them back to the place where their hope was first stirred. And it's at that moment when their hearts are opened once again and they're able to recognize Jesus. And so why do I say that it's their hearts that are open and it's not their eyes that are open? Because the Apostle Paul, when he prays for us in his letter to the Ephesians, he prays that the eyes of our hearts should be enlightened so that we may know the hope to which God has called us, hallelujah. So God has called us 
to a hope. He's called us to this living hope. And this living hope is fundamentally different from what the world calls hope. And this living hope, as Peter tells us, can only be reached through the cross. So why then is hope an exercise in stretching? Why is hope an exercise in stretching? Number one, because hope is always set before us. Not only because we see that scripture in Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11, because God is speaking in the present tense about something that he is going to give, the expected end, the hope in the future. That's not the only evidence that we have to say that our hope is set before us. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 18 and 19. The writer says, so that we who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure, or in the KGV as we know it a little better, steadfast and sure. So this hope that anchors us is up ahead. It's the hope that is set before us. And if hope is before us, if it is in front of us, then we have to stretch for it. And in fact, we understand the stretching towards hope even more when we go back, uh, when we go forward a little bit more in the book of Hebrews. Now we normally, when we think about faith, we go straight to chapter 11 that tells us that faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not yet seen. But in order for us to really understand that faith, and that substance of the things that are hoped for, the invisible hope. We don't start reading chapter 11. We actually start reading in chapter 10. When we look at the verse 35 and it says, do not throw away your confidence. In other words, do not throw away your hope for it will be richly rewarded. And then it goes on to say, you need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. So remember from Romans chapter five, verse three, we persevere into character and we, and we continue through character into hope. It's this progressive nature where we move from grace to grace and glory to glory from perseverance into character and then ending up in hope. So if we persevere into character and in hope, this confidence, this hope that we've chosen not to throw away, that have chosen to hold on to, it will be richly rewarded. But then in the next verse, it tells us that God takes no pleasure in the one who shrinks back. So in other words, you don't shrink back, you stretch forward you stretch towards hope. Hope is in your future. It's never in your past. And when you speak to people who will tell you that their best days are behind them, they're people who 
who haven't really understood the nature of God. They're people whose theology needs a little bit of tweaking. Hope is never in the past, it's always in the future. But sometimes you need an updated understanding of what you went through, even if you have to look in the past. And so this is why we see these disciples fleeing, essentially, Jerusalem. They, they say, we can't stay in this city anymore. There are too many reminders. This place is hot. We need to get out of here. And they go, they're going back to what they knew before. They're going back. They think that their future is in Emmaus or wherever, what their final destination, their final village was. But then we see at the end of this text, which is so encouraging, that once the eyes of their hearts have been opened once again, and they have a better understanding that they immediately return back to Jerusalem. They stretch back. And so you need to stretch in hope. So hope is an exercise of stretching because hope is always set before us. It's in the future. It's the anchor that keeps us steadfast and sure. It's never in our past. And so we don't shrink back despite what has happened. We stretch forward into hope. The second reason why we have to view hope as an exercise in stretching. Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9, verse 18. And it's quite interesting that we see this both in Hebrews and in Romans, because in a way, these two books belong to one another. They, they are books that have very resonant themes in the two of them. And so we know the scripture very well. Paul writing, he says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope. That the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit groan inward as we wait eagerly for our adoption unto sonship, the redemption of our bodies. Now, verse 24, for in this hope we were saved, but hope, that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. So Paul wanted us to get this, that this is about hope. It's about stretching towards a hope. And it's not only our hope, creation, has been subjected in hope, waiting for us to be manifest as the children of God. And so we started off earlier speaking about when you, those of you who are on the call who are parents, you have hopes for your kids. Some of you hope that your kids will be lawyers. Some of you hope that your kids will be athletes. 
Some of you simply hope that your kids will be able to break the generational curses. Whatever it is that you're hoping for your kids, you have a hope. Whether you've expressed it or not, you have a hope. And we see in the scripture that God also has a hope for and through his children, that he has subjected all of creation into bondage in the hopes that his children will be manifest. And that as we have this hope, it's not only creation that is waiting for this hope, but it's us as well. We're waiting for the redemption of our bodies. We are waiting because this is the reason, this is the hope in which we were saved. When Jesus came to earth, this was the hope of the world coming. And if we're gonna wait for this hope, and he repeats it several times, that hope that is seen is not hope at all. So it's not about the temporal things, it's about the eternal things. That this living hope that we now have through the resurrection of Jesus, we wait for this hope patiently. We hope for this hope patiently. And so as we are waiting for the manifestation of this hope, God has sent his first begotten son down into earth. That's a form of stretching. He has stretched him into the earth for him to be our Messiah. As we are waiting in hope for the manifestation, for the, our adoption to sonship, we are also stretching towards our Father. We're stretching through the visible. We're stretching through the temporal. And we're reaching out for the eternal. And so we see here that hope in, in these sentences are both noun and verb. It's the state, the thing, the essence of hope that we're reaching for but it's also this action of stretching forward, but, but hoping patiently. So we have to stretch towards that hope. And as the scripture ends, where Paul says that if we do hope for what we do not yet have, then we wait for it patiently, or we hope for it patiently. And it brings us to the third point, why is hope an exercise in stretching? Because sustaining hope demands patience. So he says that we will wait for it patiently. But we also see this language in Isaiah chapter 40 that ends and tells us that them who wait on the Lord, them who hope in the Lord, they will renew their strengths. And I saw something that actually I never understood before. I always thought that this scripture said that them who wait upon the Lord shall be renewed. Maybe I read it in a certain way, but I always understood it that they shall have their strengths renewed. That's not what the scripture says. It says they shall renew their strength. Meaning that as you are waiting on the Lord, as you are hoping on God, he is not renewing your strength. You are not passively having your strength renewed. As you are hoping on God, as you are waiting on the Lord, you are renewing your strength. And then the scripture continues. It says that 
they will mount up with eagle's wings. It's at that point where the breath of God now begins to take you and blow you up into the place where you're meant to coast on that hope. And he says that you will run and not grow weary. You will walk and not faint. And running and walking are two different things. So you're moving at two speeds when you are in hope that you, when you run, it's because you have somewhere to get to. It's because you need speed. It's because you are in a race. But when you are walking, you are able to take your time to observe what is around you. And they always say, you know, you, you walk and you smell the roses. And you might just think that that's a saying, but actually I found myself doing that the other day. I was walking to the supermarket and it was a beautiful day. No clouds, very sunny, a little bit cool, but very, very pleasant. And somehow there was a flower bush over, over a wall and it was just out of nowhere in bloom. It's a little early for the flowers to be blooming like that. So I actually stopped and I had to look at this flower bush because it was just so unexpected. It was so beautiful. But I could do that because I was walking and not because I was running. So God says that in order to sustain hope, in that moment when you are stretching towards hope, you're moving in two speeds and you're able to do two things. You're gonna be able to run when you need speed, when you're racing, when you need to get somewhere, and you're gonna be able to walk, to slow down, to observe what's going on around you and to enjoy your environment. So sustaining hope demands this patience, demands this patience. And in this patience, you will renew your strength. So it's a stretching, it's a stretching that's taking place. So what then can we say about leadership? What are the leadership lessons that we draw from this idea of hope as an exercise in stretching? Very simply, that the leader must maintain hope for the people, even in the face of crisis. That even when the leader is hopeless himself, the leader has to stretch into hope. So practically, how do you do this? Number one, remember that even when you are at your saddest, even when you are at your most hopeless, that Jesus will join you on the journey. So we see in this text, Cleopas and his companion, they had their hope dashed, they had their hope killed, and they were so sad that they didn't recognize Jesus when he joined them on their journey. And if you've ever been so hopeless that you didn't know that it was Jesus who was walking right alongside you, this passage is encouraging. He tells us that he is near to the brokenhearted. And so it's in those moments when you don't even know that it's him, that his word is, is true when he says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So the hopeful leader is the one who is able to remember that even at your saddest, even at your most hopeless, that Jesus will join you on the journey. That number two, the hopeful leader is the one who is able to maintain the spirit of hospitality even when you can't see Jesus. So again, Cleopas and his friend, they didn't know who the stranger was, 
And what I find so interesting as well is when Jesus asks them, well, well, why are you guys so so down? You know, most of us at that point would just ask this guy, like, <laughs> are you like you are you new here? You you don't know what's happened in town? Like, where have you been living? Which rock did you climb out from? But Cleopas isn't rude. He just simply asks, Well, do you not know? Have you not heard what's been all a buzz happening in Jerusalem these few days? So the hope full leader is able to maintain the spirit of hospitality, even when you can't see Jesus. At this moment, Cleopas and his friend, they don't know it's Jesus, and they have so many problems of their own in their state of hopelessness. But as they reach their destination and this stranger is about to leave them, they urge him not to stay. They, they urge him not to go. They invite him to stay with them because the night is coming. And so hopelessness will often try to make you bitter, to make you fearful, to make you self-preserving. But the way of Jesus is to offer hospitality, to clothe the naked, to visit the poor and the imprisoned, to offer a cup of water or even the last bit of meal that you have to a prophet. And so where hopelessness would tell you to shrink back, hope calls you to stretch. And so we see Cleopas and his friend extending, stretching their hospitality to the stranger. They don't know it's Jesus. They can't see that it's Jesus. And yet they offer the spirit of hospitality anyway. And then the third point, what does the hopeful leader do? When your hope is rekindled, then you act immediately. And so we see this, that Cleopas and his friend, the moment Jesus breaks the bread, blesses it, gives it to them, and then the, the eyes of their understanding are now opened and he vanishes from their sight. And they say, oh, didn't we know? Didn't we know there was something that was just burning in us as he was speaking, didn't we know? And immediately, they turn around and they go back to Jerusalem. They've just walked two hours. They've just checked in and have paid for a hotel for the night. And they immediately go back because their hope has been rekindled. When they say, wasn't our heart burning within us? That was the sign to them. That was the heat of their hope coming back to life. So much so that it drives them back to Jerusalem immediately to go and tell the 11 that indeed Jesus is risen, he is back and there's work to do because our hope is in our future. Hope is that powerful. In fact, hope is crucial as a leadership trait. So as a hopeful leader, you need to learn to feed yourself hope and you need to feed those who you lead hope. You weave hope in as you are casting your vision. You weave hope in as you are cultivating a sense of possibility. You weave hope in as you are setting goals and making plans. You weave hope in as you are building relationships. The hopeful leader is the one who focuses on the best and not the worst in people. The hopeful leader 
is the one who is never satisfied with the status quo, but is always content with progress. The hopeful leader is the one who leads from discipline and not emotions. The hopeful leader is the one who builds bridges while others are burning them. The hopeful leader is the one who's not afraid to tell the truth while others are manipulating it. And finally, the hopeful leader is the one who chooses hope because we know that it is a choice. And so I pray for you. I pray for you as Paul prayed. And he said, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. And Father, I add that we thank you, O God of hope. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you were the hope that came to the world, and that by your death and by your resurrection, we now have a living hope. And Lord, as we stretch towards you, as we stretch towards this hope, may our eyes and our hearts be opened. May we continue to stretch forward to the future, to the good plans that you have for each and every one of us. Thanks be to God that you continue to entrust us with your plans. Father, we ask you to forgive us for all of the times that we have shrunk back and that that has displeased you because we know that without faith it is impossible to please you. And we ask you this evening, Lord, that you would empower us once again with the courage and the boldness and the zeal and the commitment to stretch forward we thank you, Lord, that even in this resurrection season, that you were giving us a new hope to go forward in the rest of this year of prosperity. In everything, we give you thanks, we give you glory, we give you adoration. In the mighty name of Jesus, we have prayed. Amen.